0: This week on the Backtable Podcast. If you have something and you think it's going to work, you ought to give it a try. I mean, go for it. You know, sometimes it it may take you a while and uh, it's probably going to go a little bit differently than you have it initially conceived. And you've got to be willing to bring people on and work with people and listen and understand, you know, really. But it's fun. It's a fun journey. And and I think the fun part of it is, is to see something that, that you think can be a benefit and then see it through to where it actually is making an impact in patients' lives. It becomes very meaningful and gratifying at that point. Do it.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for medical innovation. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Eric Amaker as your host this week. We have the folks from My Motion here, Marlon and Chris. I wanted to start by asking you to introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to be in the entrepreneurial innovation space.
0: I'm Marlon Hansen. I'm a neurotologist, which means an inner ear and skull base surgeon. And I primarily practice out of the University of Iowa. So we do a lot of work around uh, inner ear and especially cochlear implants. And that's kind of what led us to this innovation is we were trying to develop ways to, to do a better job with cochlear implants and, than currently. And so that's, that's kind of what led us to this.
2: Awesome. Chris, yeah, I'm uh, Chris Kaufman. I, uh, I guess I'm a clinician, engineer, scientist. I grew up in South Texas, I have a background in uh, biomedical engineering, did uh, business on undergrad as well as some biochemistry, and so kind of a diverse uh, background that kind of led me through this path that I guess we'll get into here in a little bit. But went to medical school. Prior to that, I worked uh, on drug-eluting stent development I'm down in San Antonio where they developed the first stent, then went to medical school, um, did general surgery, and then matched up into at the University of Iowa and ENT. Uh, I was in the, the T32 uh, research resident. tract After a year of ENT, I got in the lab with working with Marlon, uh, really at uh, University of Iowa. I uh, was one of the top cochlear implant centers in, in the country, really the world. Um, and Marlon and Dr. Gantz, um, really having the clinical perspective, saw a need. And really that's when Marlon and I got together and started developing it.
1: Awesome. Chris, obviously you had sort of the engineering background. I was also a biochem major, by the way. Um, so, uh, I lots of respect to you. Marlon, uh, for you, did you have an entrepreneurial background or a business background, engineering background, or you sort of really came from the clinical side?
0: I came from, I have not a business background. Um, I have engineering interests, but no background. And my, my background was really, I, I have a, a lab that does sort of basic auditory neurobiology and regeneration and but also a lot of efforts to try and translate what we do to to make uh, cochlear implants and other therapies better and had some ideas around how we might be able to do that but really didn't have the expertise to do it or other people who had the expertise to work with until chris showed up so had some of these ideas Way back, you know, we sort of dabbled in them, but really didn't do anything. And then when Chris came, it sort of opened up the avenue that you know he had the time and the expertise to work on it. And so we started to work on it together.
1: Awesome, awesome. So Chris, how did you come from a BME and biochem background and business to uh, robotics and uh, working with working with Marlin?
2: Yeah, so I think you know, as part of NIH fellowship, you have two years of really, like Marlin said, dedicated research, which is nice because I think it gives you the time um, away from the clinical activities, but you still bring the clinical perspective, combine that with kind of engineering a little bit of business that I'd had previously. I think really what it came down to, like a lot of things, is is funding. We got into the lab and needed, Marlon had the idea, we just needed a way to get some funding to help develop early prototypes, um, start working with some of the cochlear implant companies. And so it all started with an SBR grant, really, we said, okay, this something that you know can be potentially translated into a, a company because it's very there's a lot of interest from the cochlear implant space um, and there's for one just a, a very big clinical need is really what started it all and so we applied for that first spr grant through the nsf initial science foundation uh, we got it our first try We used those funds while i was a research resident to start developing robotic prototypes to address really the need of um, improving access to cochlear implants and really standardizing the insertion and minimizing trauma
1: That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think what you guys are doing is really definitely needed because, you know, having done these with actually Dr. Sami, Ravi Sami, you know, old old Iowa alum, I know how traumatic it can be, especially when some people like me do it. But, you know, what was the pain point that you were trying to solve for, you know, more specifically? And how did you think that the robot was the best solution?
0: The issue is you're putting in a pretty big piece of equipment into a very small, delicate space. It really has become quite evident that any trauma you cause has deleterious effects. And it became even more heightened in the era now where, you know, for the past 20 years at Iowa, we have been working on this idea that it's better to preserve whatever residual hearing you have in the ear. And so it became almost imperative to come up with ways to be more smooth, more steady, less traumatic, more precise, and also to make that so that everybody could do it. Because, you know, what I could see is that, you know, there were a handful of centers that would really try and do any structure or function preservation by putting in the cochlear implant. And, and most places weren't, you know, it wasn't even on their radar screen to do that. And so you had to have something that you could have every surgeon uh, use and use at a high level. And then some of it actually has to do with, well, what happens if the patient loses hearing or has a change in their hearing status after you put the implant in, can you adapt it so that you can personalize where the electrode is to optimize it for that individual patient's hearing? And so I think that in, in a big scheme, to make it a short answer, one, better structure, better function preservation, more consistent results and more consistent results across a wide experience range of surgeons.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, obviously this, this may go across to our ENT backtable, but, you know, our, our backtable innovation audience isn't all ENTs. So, you know, for those who aren't familiar, cochlear implants obviously are an implanted device that goes into the cochlea itself, but not all patients are completely deaf. Some have residual hearing, and that's sort of the population you're primarily talking about with the solution. Is that correct?
0: Well, we're talking about all patients who receive a cochlear implant because even those where there isn't measurable hearing, there's still structure and function in that cochlea that's important to preserve. So there's lots of data now that show that if you damage those delicate little structures in the inner ear, you're probably not only causing scarring and fibrosis, but the nerve itself that you're trying to to stimulate is injured, and just the overall benefit from the electrode is diminished. So, anything we can do to mitigate or reduce damage, even on a micro, micro scale, is probably uh, very helpful for the patient, even if they don't have, res- of course, if they have residual hearing function, like you mentioned, Eric, but even if they don't have residual hearing function, even if it's a completely deaf ear, there's still stuff in there we need to preserve to help it to work best.
1: For sure, for sure. And 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 typically it's it's the surgeon who's actually inputting the array into the cochlea through a very very small millimeter size hole and and putting this small electrode in there, um, which can be quite difficult. So tell me about sort of you had an idea, you got some grant funding. That's very different from building a prototype and thinking about building some kind of product to actually launching a company and raising funds and Going that route as opposed to sort of an institutional-based, can you tell me a little bit about that journey?
2: Yes, yeah, so I think Marlon kind of alluded to. We we started with you know kind of a, I think it comes down to de-risking a technology to a point where it's attractive to investment. It gives you a little bit of time to kind of assess and iterate and test the market out. Really, we started honestly at this sort of wild idea that Marlon alluded to, um, kind of behind the sky of if we can sort of develop a fully implantable robot you implant with the cochlear implant itself you can put the implant initially um, robotically you know submicron precision and speeds Um, and then if if the patient's um, hearing loss declines or progresses then the technology that we developed was you could transcutaneously access the implantable robotic system and advance the electrode further so that the electrode contacts are exactly where they need to be within the cochlea Um, and so really the two back to your question about sort of the pain points the main reason for this is There's a big fear of loss of of residual hearing, and and Iowa has always been at the cutting edge of hearing preservation cochlear implants, and this was a way to kind of overcome that barrier of fear of uh, hearing loss um, and help to preserve hearing. So you put the implant in a little bit of ways just where the patient needs electrical stimulation, but then they can also use a, a hearing aid to provide acoustic stimulation to the remaining parts of the cochlear, which is really the best hearing that you can have. And so over time, the problem was that hearing loss can kind of progress, which we know And so we want to be able to progress that implant, advance it further, um, and really electrically stimulate structures that have been lost over time with noise or or just as we age. And so that's really where we started with this uh, fully implantable system that can adjust an implanted electrode array. And the goal really, I think for me, when it started was just the low penetration rate of cochlear implants themselves, you know, you probably know it, Um, less than 5% of people who are eligible actually get them, which kind of just blew my mind as a resident and kind of new to the field of BNT and I think it's just a matter of asking questions like why is that and as I sort of dug deeper and deeper and deeper and kind of looked at all the different barriers and all the different pain points it was you know one was fear, fear of hearing loss which we were addressing uh, but really it was the standardization of the insertion process itself like you said it's a very complex very we probably picked the, the most challenging procedure to, to apply robotics to but there was your micron level insertion the structures are you know sub sub millimeter and so It's kind of beyond the abilities of what a surgeon, the human can, can do. And so that's really where, you know, that's where I put the two together and said, you know, this is where robotics really has a true clinical benefit in robotics with the true need here that, you know, surgeons can't go sub-micron speeds, they can't go sub-micron precision. let's make something that, you know, fits in the current approach, doesn't add cost, doesn't add significant time, It's compatible with, you know, multiple different electroarrays across um, the different implant manufacturers so that we provide access to the most um, number of patients and potentially improve that penetration rate so uh, we can treat a big public health problem of hearing loss with cochlear implants.
1: Yeah. And so when you went through this process, you know, obviously cochlear implants uh, from a company standpoint, from a total addressable market is a really small market. So as you started to enter into the conversation of, hey, this is a great idea, this is a great product, let's create a company, did you do market research? Did you see what competitors were in this space? Did you think about monetization, how you're going to grow a company based on a small population, uh, basically, as compared to you know something in the other spaces that are more consumer-focused or larger populations?
0: I would say yes and no. We certainly looked at those things, but primarily our motivation was to try and develop something that was going to help and benefit people and say, you know, this is really a need and this is something where we think we can develop something that's going to, it was really going to, we feel like it's really going to move the needle in a lot of ways. And so that was our primary motivation. And I I don't know that we were initially in particular that concerned with exactly the market size. We were more concerned about, is this going to work and can it work and how does it help and what's the benefit and what's the outcome. Obviously, as you as you move down the path, you need to have something that is, you know, you can't just build something and not have it go through an industry sort of phase and get it into the hands of all the patients and all the surgeons that need to do it. And so those are other things that we have been addressing those other issues. And fortunately, it's, it's, it's looked quite favorable for things. But I, to say that that was the fore of what we were doing from the beginning, I, I, it certainly wasn't for me. And maybe Chris can tell you what his thoughts are on it, too.
2: Yeah, I know. I think just as clinicians and surgeons with that mindset, you're you're wanting the best for your patients. Uh, you're wanting to improve outcomes and improve healthcare. I think we, we did look at the, those factors, obviously, you know, cochlear implant uh, industry is a multi-billion dollar market. So that checks that box. I mean, if you look at the low penetration rate of 5%, if you look at the, you know, the missed revenue opportunities, if you increase the penetration rate, you know, by one or 2%, that equates to, you know, multi-billion dollar missed revenue opportunity. So, I think it's almost like it's kind of an orphan drug kind of mentality of there's a, there's an opportunity here, but we're um, overall from a, even a public health perspective, uh, missing it both on the, on the health side as well as the commercial side as well.
1: Got it. And, and as you sort of went through that commercialization process, did you have any pushback from investors? I know you've gone through several rounds of investors and, and raising money, which is fantastic, and, and obviously a lot of grant funding as well. Has there been any skeptics who said, you know, this is this is not something? You know, it's a great idea, a great mission. You know, we're not sure about this as a business.
0: I don't. I don't think anyone's really pushed to say this is a bad business idea. I, I don't think we've we've heard those. I think you know, there's probably a little differing ideas about how big of a business it might be. But I think almost everybody who looks at it says, you know, look, there's a need here. This fills a need, and you know, the way we design this is to really integrate into the natural flow of surgery. So we're not talking about something that's this huge multi-million dollar investment of a hospital system to get into the hands of surgeons to do just one specific surgery. This is really something that takes the most crucial part of this procedure, that's very difficult for human kinetics to accomplish, and takes over that part of the procedure or complements the surgeon in that part of the procedure, but it, it doesn't contemplate, it isn't designed to be some big behemoth machine type thing that, you know, takes over. So, you know, it turns out that the economics are actually quite favorable. Um, and so I don't think we've had a lot of pushback on, you know, there's disagreements about what size of market it might be, but but everyone, I think, who looks at it says it's a very favorable market.
1: So, you know, the the other thing is, is obviously, you know, starting... Uh, this type of idea and working through at a, at a university level, how did you manage sort of the intellectual property working with? I don't know if there's a an innovation arm of to to University of Iowa or commercialization or tech transfer. How how did that process go for you, and how did how did that negotiations or how do those conversations with University of Iowa go?
0: Yeah, th- there is, and and that's a good that's a very good question. So, the initial. Uh, IP that went in on this was filed by the university as is university policy. So we filed it through the university and then they strongly recommended. And, and we agreed that that was a good strategy is to form a small startup company and license that IP from them. And so the initial IP, in fact, that's one of the main reasons to do it is, is you know, the university is not going to commercialize a robotic device. So if they want to see the IP move forward, if we want to see the IP move forward, it really does require commercialization type effort. And so, yeah, we, we negotiated the licensing agreement for the IP through the university that the university's foundation uh, had. So that's basically how it happened is they filed some of the initial IP. We negotiated with them what the terms of the licensing agreement for that IP would be they still have some, a little bit of say in how the company goes and a little bit of stuff. They have a percentage of the company as a consequence of that.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. And how about as the company has grown and your role within the company versus as a clinician, you know, I, I myself am part-time clinician. I'm 60% clinical and 40% working for a technology company. And that's a constant battle of trying to, you know, divide myself 30 times into Multiple areas. How have you managed working with the company as well as being a practicing and active clinician?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the university is has really strong guidance around this. So we have conflict of interest policies and things that we do, and and we truly try to make sure it's clean between the university. You know, is very supportive. Our initial office for the little small startup company was actually in university space for you know these little incubator type scenarios so we started there and you know we we just keep it separate I make sure that you know my time is separate we try and make sure that in fact all the way through we have made sure that you know university work is done with university things and resources and time and iota motion work and resources are used to develop iota motion things so
1: totally understand Uh, you're still full time clinical right
0: yeah I mean yeah clinical slash administrative slash research so sure I have several research grants that are devoted to things that are not robotic, have a clinical and surgical practice. And then I'm also have an administrative, I'm the department chair. So I have an administrative role within the department as well.
1: Keeps you really busy. I don't know where you'd produce time, but I'd like to find out. So the other question I had was that, um, you know, as you sort of grew the company, obviously you had to onboard members to the company obviously you had chris and yourself but how did you start to build out that team um, and what i guess how do you plan to continue to do that
0: yeah so the first person we hired was actually an engineer who chris knew very well it's one of chris's colleagues from back there and and we the way we set it up is really through the SBIR where he would he would function as a PI on the SBIR And so that was, and then that's how we got the initial support. And then through grant funding and through investor funding, uh, we started to grow and add an employee here and an employee there, depending on what the needs were. We worked with a guy named Eric Timko who came out of the orthopedic robotic space and, and he sort of took over as our chairman and has helped a lot with the fundraising. And, and he kind of had the context that, he could go to to get some of the initial fundraising that we needed to do to keep things moving forward. Obviously, we have a lot of people who are not just employees, but are consultants. So we use FDA consultants and all kinds of different people. And, and it's and it's growing. So it's it's now becoming a, a much larger operation than just me and Chris and <laughs> and a bag of ideas. I think the
2: key is to run it efficiently we tried to keep it as lean as possible leverage our our grant funding with the private investment with with eric's helped bring that in and so with that i think we were able to be very efficient about it and kind of de-risk it to the different sort of gated phases where you know now it's a very attractive point for investment and in kind of a, a scalable kind of hit the gas and once you kind of de-risk it to that point i think the big key for us obviously is being the first you know fda approved robotic assisted cochlear implant insertion system so now we're at a point where
0: Um, It becomes a a scaling and um, really commercialization phase.
1: That's fantastic.
0: And, you know, Chris was really good in this. And, you know, we we had milestones and we just really, like Chris mentioned, I think being small, we were nimble, very efficient and uh, made really good use of grant funding as well as the other investor funding that we had. So I think all of those things were very helpful to us.
2: I think it helped us in a way, just the the fact that we were able to do what we have done with, with, uh, I guess the research that we have really, I mean, getting through COVID with a lot of unexpected, you know, obviously global pandemics, right. We you know, did complete clinical study and, and submit to the FDA during that time. I think was a lot, was hard for a lot of startups, you know, markets were shutting down and things are, or hospitals are closing. And so from a med tech perspective, you know, we were prepared for that because of the way we were already set up with sort of these phase gated milestones really, you know, phase one, two, three and stick to the plan and execute accordingly. Time the incoming funding with the next milestones.
1: Yeah, you brought up the big gorilla in the room and and FDA. I know a lot of people who've gone through this process and they're just afraid of going through the FDA process. But it sounds like for you guys, it actually was pretty straightforward and simple, even though it was during COVID.
0: I mean straightforward yes and no. It
1: straightforward <laughs> straightforward in a circuitous route. Exactly.
0: <laughs> it's straightforward once you're on the backside of it. But it's Yes, it's, exactly. No, but it went well. I mean, we, we had I think the FDA, they saw the value and I think they saw, you know, we had the data. And that that's the critical thing is if, if you have data to support it, and if you can show it and and then I think, you know, they were pretty enthusiastic. Yeah, we had a good team
2: of, you know, consultants. I think that was the other way if we went up to Obviously, small team, but uh, surrounded by some of the, you know some of the top consultants in the industry, and so I think that helps for under yourself with some of the expertise that's been there, done that um, before, and been successful in the past. Um, it just helps.
1: Have you had to go through insurance reimbursement, or do you think you'll have to at some point?
0: Currently, we don't, but I mean, I think that that's all of robotics face that that specific issue. It also was really helpful to us to be to come out of the University of Iowa, where we already had a lot of infrastructure and a lot of willingness and know-how to kind of be on the cutting edge or be at the tip of the sphere of, of cochlear implants. It really helped to be in that sort of environment, I think. It it could have been really difficult in in other environments. Um so we were greatly benefited by being at at this particular institution with the particular expertise that we have.
1: So you know a lot of people go through this process and and hear all of these innovators that have gone through it and just like, oh, just it's simple. It's straightforward. Can you talk some about your setbacks and some of your failures along the way and what you learned from that and what you would tell others about that?
0: There's always little things. And, and I think part of it is is just uh, believing in what you're doing and being a bit persistent and having the right team around you. Some of our, I think our, I'd say one of our biggest challenges came right close to the end that when we were going for FDA approval, we were, you know, within what we thought was the closing days, if not week, of having FDA approval, and they threw us a curveball out of the blue that we didn't anticipate, and that slowed us down quite a bit. I mean, it, it took months to kind of address that particular issue, and, and it wasn't necessarily a lot of fun, and it really kind of slowed down some of our timelines and some things like that. So I would say that was the biggest challenge. You know, there's always the challenges around design, it's funny for me to look back and look at some of our early prototypes and some of the concepts that we had, and some were really good and just weren't tractable or doable. And it's been a fun journey. I I don't know. You always anticipate that it's not going to be like just a smooth road. So we didn't go in with rose-colored lenses thinking this is going to be just a an easy path. We always knew it was going to be a path forward. In my opinion, it's it's gone much better than I would have anticipated. You know, maybe that's a pessimist in me, but it really has gone uh, remarkably well.
1: It's always good to have low expectations, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we, yeah. I don't know about that, but it, it's
2: always nice to be surprised
0: that you can actually do this. You know,
2: you know, I always had that the drive that even if the challenges came up, that we would get together as a team and and figure it out. So I think that's probably key. Just the strong relationships and trust.
0: I mean, I think that's it. Is a great team. That's that's the that's the key is the right people and, and belief in, in the system. And that's key.
2: Having the unified direction and just, just going, but yeah, again, to answer the question about biggest challenge, yeah. I say FDA and kind of the process we went through was obviously a, was a de novo. And so they asked kind of an interactive process. And so again, in the middle of COVID, they wanted additional clinical data, which is FDA. And, and that's what they want to see the data like Marlon said. And so we had to kind of get together and figure out how to do that and, and do a clinical study while hospitals were closing their doors. And so fortunately we were successful. And again, with kind of the experience and the network and relationships that Mark and the RSI would have, we were able to kind of go around and get that done.
1: What what has been the reaction from all the cochlear implant companies to your product?
0: It's been fun to watch. Each one's been a little bit different. You know, at first, I think they may have had, because there are some other robotics uh, technologies that are being conceived and, and even developed. But I think when they actually got their hands on it, they were just almost floored. And they and how quickly we were able to get something that, that worked so well, I think it almost blew them away for the most part. I, I don't know if that's the right thing, but because we were small, because we were nimble, we were able to move pretty quickly. And I think that surprised them. And I think it surprised them how well it actually works and that it it's a different concept than I think a lot of these other robotics have taken where, you know, they're doing an access thing and it's just these large arms that come in and it's actually doing the surgery a completely different way. This is really just integrating in with the natural workflow of the surgery. I think a lot of them thought the way we did is, you know, this, okay, now we see, now we see this, this makes a lot of sense to us.
2: You know, we would worked with them kind of with, in terms of support and electrodes and things like that, but then really seen their full approach. And once we had approval and started, you know, making the rounds with it and people were really seeing the system, the biggest difference is we were doing it completely different than anybody else was thinking about it. I mean, like Marlott said, there were big robotic systems take up half the room. They take up a lot of time and training, but we were a, a single use disposable system where the robot is, you know, you throw away the robot after, at the end of the case. Even in the field of robotics in general, it's it's kind of a novel concept, um, where you have a miniature robotic system that is disposable. Um, I remember going and, and doing a demo in Europe and just kinda of walking in. Um there was another robot there that they had been doing and it's taking up a polo, walking with the, you know, a briefcase and you open it up five minutes, set it up and you and then you're doing the insertion, everybody's just kind of amazed at, you know, the how it fits into everything that's there. You don't have to change anything and you got submicron precision and control.
1: That's great. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about the product itself. So it's implant agnostic, so it'll it'll do any of the electrodes?
0: It'll do lateral wall electrodes from all the cochlear implant manufacturers. There's a pyramidilar electrode from one of the manufacturers that is inserted with a sheath and we have prototypes to be able to do that, but it's not yet ready to be used for that particular electrode array.
1: Got it, got it. So when surgeons are doing the insertion, they can sort of feel that a little bit of feedback when it feels like it's gone in. How does the robot know when to stop, uh, and and does it have that sort of force feedback on the on the electrode
2: array? So I actually started in the lab, kind of looking at different insertion forces, and that's kind of how that's the whole system developed. And really, what we found is it's the it's the slow insertion speed that actually I mean the overshoots and decreasing the outliers that actually decreases the overall forces and causes the high spikes that cause the damage in the lab at least in an effort to kind of fit it in to kind of the cost perspective plus intraoperative setting and keep it small and miniature and disposable what we found was that you can actually with the buckling electrode array we have you can visualize the the forces and Marley can talk more to this visualize actual forces um, just by the inherent mechanical properties um, as well as there's some built-in sort of hardware-based maximums I guess if you will that kind of limit
0: that yeah, but uh, uh, maybe a point to, to bring out is actually a surgeon can't sense the type of forces that would cause trauma within the cochlea. If a surgeon is is feeling some major resistance, either there's a lot of scar tissue or other things built up in that ear, or you're charging through some things that, you know, it's, and the damage has been done. <laughs> so it's well below the threshold of what a human can can perceive, a human hand.
1: Which is a huge value, obviously. How about handling atypical anatomy like a common cavity or something along those lines?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, right now we're we just limit ourselves to a normal cochlea. It's not to say that in the future it may not you, we wouldn't also consider using it in in uh, malformed or otherwise diseased. It probably would not ever be used uh, realistically in ossified cochlea or cochlea with a lot of scarring in them, but in malformed cochlea, there, there might be, but just to be able to get it launched and to get it into the hands of surgeons and get field use and feedback, we, we, we limited it to ears that have normal anatomical radiographic anatomy, at least.
1: Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about the surgeons. So, you know, we've seen in other technologies as they come to the clinical realm, we've seen fear for some of the technologies, quote unquote, taking over people's jobs. We've seen this in artificial intelligence and in radiology and dermatology. There's some element of robotics as well. Have you had any pushback from surgeons with regards? Oh, this is, this is what I do every day. Why do I need a robot to do this for me?
0: Yeah, I mean, not much. I mean, I, there was one surgeon that said something like that. You don't
1: have to name names. It's okay. Yeah, there, there was one
0: surgeon who 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 claimed that he was he, he claimed that he was as good better than a robot or as good as a robot. And actually, it's it's been fun. We you know we'll have these things at conferences where a lot of surgeons will come by our booth and they can put them on a we can put a put it on a force transducer and we can let them insert an electrode array and then we can put it up against the the robot and it can be the John Henry sort of. Task and they can see and that and we've yet to find the surgeon that that wins. So, you know that there might be one out there. There's one that thinks he is better, but but for the most part, you know this does not take the surgery away from the surgeon. The surgeon still does all of the surgery. This actually enables the surgeon. Like one of our most experienced surgeons using it loves it because it gives him now two hands free. It gives him more ability. In surgery, it's not only steadier, but he can be more precise and more better with it. And so, they they actually enjoy it; they have fun with it. They they're not; it's not taking the surgery out of their hands and putting it into something else. The other thing that's important to understand is that they remain completely in control. Uh, the way we have this design to mitigate risk and and to really make it work well, we want the surgeon to be in control of things the whole time. So the surgeon's in control of the insertion. And they can go slower, they can stop, they can reverse, they can alter the trajectory by manipulating the array a little bit. So all of those things, I think surgeons actually have a fun time with it. We've almost universally found that to be true. Yeah, I would agree. I think the other point to bring up, I think is, you know,
2: patients want, when they're going into surgery, they want the best care possible. I think you're seeing this in other robotic areas of Having the tools available, whether it's AI, whether it's robotics or it's imaging. to so, you know, optimize care, you know, optimize the chances of successful outcomes. I mean, most patients are asking for it the best uh, tools available.
0: The one other thing that surgeons that I, I you know, I've, I've used it several, many times. And one of the great things is it enables other technologies that complement what we're doing. So we now use technologies, for instance, that electrocochleography, which is a way of monitoring the function of the cochlea. And so you can now integrate your insertion with these other devices, and you have much more control, much better ability to respond and to deal with whatever's happening if you do these things robotically, and so it makes it you just feel a lot more comfortable with what you're doing, that that you know what's going on, and you know you can think of this as like driving a car, I think is a good analogy, and you you just go really slow and. You know, you're not going to cause problems. Even if you do happen to hit a tree, you're not going to dent your fender, you know, if if you're going slow. So, you know, it it does, though, enable a lot of these other technologies. The other thing that was really fun is, you know, we had a couple of patients where they have hearing in their ear that we're not putting the electrode in. And we do it under local. And so we can be stimulating the implant that we're putting in while we're putting in and robotically going very slow and they can tell us how it matches the tones that we're putting in their other ear. So we put a 750 Hertz tone in their other ear and they say, yeah, it's a little bit higher than that. Put another tone in. Now it's getting lower. Now it's close. Yep. That's it. That matches that tone I'm hearing in my other ear. So we can do all of that while the patient's awake and we're putting in the electrode. And that, some of those things, you know, you just can't do that if you're doing it manually. So it makes it fun for the surgeon.
1: That's incredible. As we've seen with the other technologies, once doctors and surgeons get past that irrational fear of the technology, they start to realize how it actually may enable them to do their job and maybe better for patients. And I think that's universal to all the different technologies that are in this space. What's next for your guys, for your company, for the technology?
0: Well, there's a lot, <laughs> so you know we're we're in very much a a limited market release where we're where we're just doing our initial uh, few hundred cases and and really have a good sense of how it's performing out in the field and what we need to do. We already know of some things that we're doing to improve the next version of that comes out, and then we have several other complementary. And additional technologies that build on top of this. So this is the first thing, and and you know it's going to go from something that does just lateral wall electrode arrays to do all electrode arrays. It's going to move from something where we now integrate it with other technologies, whether it's electrocochleography or image or imaging or uh, you know preoperative planning. You know, like Chris talked about earlier, eventually the vision is is that this becomes implanted with the original cochlear implant. And then we can access that transcutaneously or percutaneously while the patient's awake in the clinic. And we can adjust or dial in the position of the electrode array for that individual patient so that we can either move it forward if they lose further hearing, you know, two years later, we can move it forward. Or if they have a dead zone in their cochlea that's not being able to be stimulated, we can adjust the position of the electrodes so it personalizes the position of the electrode for individual patients, you know, we're obviously interested in not just cochlear implants, but there's a lot of other medical devices that require a similar type precision that are sort of based on the same concepts.
1: That's incredible.
2: I would agree. I think
0: it's just from a high level,
2: just continuously improving and kind of continuously learning. I think that's what it's about and listening to the needs and where the market is headed. So
1: it's interesting you you thought about all the other applications in this space and and of your technology. When I came to sort of the technology space, the educational technology space and gaming, I started to pay attention to what the rest of the industry was doing. Have you seen other robotic applications within a or other specialties that is interesting or exciting to you that you've been following?
0: Yeah, definitely. There's some of the technology we're interested in seeing how we can leverage that or integrate that into the things that we're doing. You know, some of that has to do with planning and, and trajectory and There's other robotics that are being used. You know, obviously the big robotics is used now commonly for some oropharyngeal surgery are now being done robotically. There's other things, uh, other robotic systems where even doing fine manual things, it kind of stabilizes the natural tremor of a surgeon's hand and diminishes that if you're doing really fine micro- so the surgery, like a cochlear implant or like microvascular anastomosis or sewing nerves together or something like that, that require these really fine things. So there's quite a bit of it that's being developed.
1: We've seen some of the robotic bronchoscopy, and it's always interesting for us because they basically use a game console controller to be able to control the robot. So it's always yeah. really funny how things have come full circle a little bit.
0: Yeah, the gaming industry has actually pushed technology for, forward a lot faster than some other things have done.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's been sort of where you go for the cutting edge technologies to look where games are. And, you know, movies in the entertainment industry have really tried to push the envelope and we're trying to figure out how to integrate that back into medicine and medical education. So it's, a, it's an interesting space and an awesome space to be at. You all, both have been along a long, longish journey. Mm-hmm. We have other entrepreneurs and people are looking to do product development who listen to the podcast. What would your top advice be to those individuals?
0: if you have something and you think it's going to work, you ought to give it a try. I mean, go for it. You know, sometimes it, it may take you a while and uh, it's probably going to go a little bit differently than you have it initially conceived. And you've got to be willing to bring people on and work with people and listen and understand, you know, really, but it's fun. It's a fun journey. And, and I think, The fun part of it is, is to see something that you think can be a benefit and then see it through to where it actually is making an impact in patients' lives. It becomes very meaningful and gratifying at that point. Do it.
2: Chris, any thoughts? For me, it was always fun. I think that's the key thing that starts with that. So do something that, you know, doesn't feel like work, but you're spending every. And in every minute of the day doing. Combine that with like a passion and drive. And I think the theme that we've said throughout this is really persistence because there's going to be roadblocks and you just have to be able to iterate and find ways around it. And if you have that discipline and just keep the purpose and, and target in mind and the goal in mind, and you'll get there. Fantastic.
1: Any closing comments? Any thoughts? Any, anything else about IOTA Motion we didn't cover? Anything else that our audience would want to hear about?
0: No, this has been fantastic. Appreciate the opportunity. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to see where things go in the future. And, and there's so much. And it's fun to be involved in that kind of stuff.
1: Fantastic uh, talking about AutoMotion and both of your journeys along this pathway. And I think our Backtable Innovation audience will be really interested to hear about this. How can they get in touch with you all? How can they find out more about your company?
2: Yeah, you can go to our website at iotemotion.com, or you can shoot us an email C. Kaufman at iotemotion.com and Tim Hanson at iotemotion.com.
1: Fantastic. Thank you both for being on the show. This was a true pleasure.
2: Thanks, Eric. Thank you, Eric.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley,
1: Aaron Fritz, and Eric Gamwerker.
2: Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWherter, and Ness Smith savadoff Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Ann Deng, social media and PR by Chi Deng, and Dana Parker.
0: Thanks again for listening.
1: See you again next
0: week.